Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Here's what's ahead on this week's Investing Insights. Disney strikes back in a proxy fight against an activist investor. Why Morningstar thinks the board edition would bring value. Plus, some big banks are building up their savings to shield against a recession. Our banking industry analyst weighs in. And a pair of 529 plans are earning top marks. We'll tell you which and what makes them the best. This is Investing Insights. Welcome to Investing Insights. I'm your host, Ivana Hampton. And let's get started with a look at the Morningstar headlines. Disney is pushing back in the proxy fight against activist investor Nelson Pelt and his Tryon partners. Pelt wants a board seat to address perceived issues, including weak governance and financial underperformance. In a securities filing, Disney said, quote, Nelson Pelt does not understand Disney's businesses and lacks the skills and experience to assist the board in delivering shareholder value in a rapidly shifting media ecosystem. Morningstar believes this proxy fight was basically inevitable. Morningstar doesn't agree with all of Peltz's concerns, but thinks his perspective would add value to Disney's insular board. We expect that he'll continue to fight until the shareholder vote or he's placed on the board. Peltz's team outlines six objectives. The list includes ensuring a successful CEO succession within two years instead of replacing Bob Iger now. Morningstar still believes Iger will extend his stay once again. And we're maintaining our $155 estimate of what we think Disney stock is worth. Haynes closed the fourth quarter with some positive news for shareholders as it begins a search for a new CFO. Net sales came in slightly ahead of the company's most recent estimates, while operating income was in line with expectations. The numbers are less than 2021's results, yet investors should see the news as a mild positive considering Haynes' weak cash flow, tough market conditions, and elevated inventories. Haynes is also looking for a new chief financial officer. Michael Dasku announced he will leave next month for family reasons. Longtime chief accounting officer and controller Scott Lewis will take over for the time being. Morningstar's $22 estimate of what we think the stock is worth shouldn't change. We view the shares as significantly undervalued. Coinbase is planning another round of layoffs. The cryptocurrency exchange platform says it will eliminate 20% of its workforce by the second quarter. It's expected Coinbase will continue to report steep losses in the fourth quarter. Weak cryptocurrency markets and the chaos following the collapse of fellow exchange FTX have pressured the company. Coinbase's other cost-cutting efforts include lower marketing, technology, and other expenses this quarter. Morningstar sees the cost reductions as a necessary and positive step as revenue has declined from its 2021 peak. We are sticking with our $90 estimate of what we think shares are worth, and we see them as undervalued. But caution investors that Coinbase results are deeply intertwined with volatile cryptocurrency prices. Some big banks are preparing for a recession. They're benefiting from higher interest rates now, but they don't expect it to stay that way. Morningstar Research Services strategist Eric Compton covers the banking industry, and he's joining Investing Insights to explain what's going on. So the banks have kicked off earnings season, and we're in a time of high inflation. What do J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo's results tell us? 
Yeah, so definitely a lot we could dive into there, uh, a lot going on with all four of those banks, but I'll, I'll pick on, I would say, probably two themes that most investors have focused on. And so uh, the first one is related to net interest income, and the second related to just a lot of the talk about is there a recession or not. And so I think with, with net interest income, uh, we're kind of, we're at an inflection point. And so at, at any sort of inflection point, everyone's trying to time that. Um, and with net interest income, as rates have risen, as, as the Federal Reserve has risen rates, uh, banks' net interest income has gone up quite a bit over the last several quarters. And as, as the Fed raises rates, banks earn more on their loans, uh, but especially at the start of a cycle, uh, they don't pay out as much on, on their deposits. And so that's what allows net interest income to go up so much. However, eventually you reach an inflection point where banks start paying people for those deposits. And so I'm sure uh, some of our listeners may have noticed uh, savings rates have gone up um, on their savings accounts or, or the rates on uh, CDs have also improved. And so as that happens, uh, banks pay out more and more on those deposits Eventually that catches up and it starts to eat away at that interest income growth. And so results showed that we have indeed reached that inflection point. Uh, Q4 uh, results were indeed roughly the, the top for net interest income for the banks. Uh, earnings from that are going to kind of, I would say, stall out or even go down a little bit for some of the banks from here. So that was a key one. Um, on recession, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more later, but on recession, banks did uh, indeed increase their provision for loan losses. Um, you did see some changes in, for example, like delinquencies on certain loans. Um, so I think we are starting to see a little bit of a normalization in the, uh, in the, the, the credit markets. Uh, however, I would say certainly nowhere near recessionary levels uh, of strain just yet. So you mentioned that you know the banks are building up their reserves in anticipation of loan losses. How do their current actions compare to what they've done before previous recessions? Yeah, so it's actually, a, it, it's a, I think, a trickier question than people realize uh, on, on face value. And that's because, um, one, every recession is a little different. And then, two, I think a point that a lot of people miss, uh, and I, I think that if, if you read a lot of, I think, some of the other headlines I've seen where people have kind of taken this to mean that the banks are, are kind of uh, definitely seeing a recession going forward, uh, I think it's important to keep in mind a, a lot of these reserves, uh, changes in reserves are just related to their economic forecasts and their economic forecasts are just as good or I would say maybe just as bad as everyone else's. And so predicting the future is, is uh, just as difficult for everyone. It's really hard to predict the timing of a recession. Um, in the quarter, we definitely saw the banks change their macroeconomic forecasts to make them slightly worse. That was the major driver of those reserve increases. And you typically, you'll see a little bit of an increase in reserves prior to past recessions. Um, every recession's a little different, some not as much as others. Uh, you didn't see as much of an increase, for example, uh, in, in the tech bubble uh, in, in early 2000s. Um, that one didn't hit the banks as hard. Uh, but you typically see provisioning peak uh, kind of towards the end of a recession or even after a recession's already over, which kind of shows you that even the banks have a hard time predicting exactly when all of this stuff is gonna happen. And so we are starting to see that go up, but I think an important point to keep in mind is it's, it's largely related to their economic forecasts. And so just understand what, like, how good or, or how much weight you wanna put on those. And uh, as far as like actual deterioration in credit quality, um, we're, we're seeing 
a, a little bit of that, but really nothing close to anything that I would call a, a recessionary level of strain just yet. Now, two banks, J.P. Morgan and Bank of America, they surpassed profit and revenue expectations in the fourth quarter. And as you said earlier, that they're earning more off the loans because of the rising interest rates. Um, but both said that they're expecting a mal-recession. Mm -hmm. um, how could that scenario affect them in the short term and the long term? Yeah, so for recessions, uh, there's typically a, a few patterns you see play out for the banks almost every time. And so during any recession, credit costs are going to go up. So provisioning is going to go up. Things like net charge-offs are going to go up. Uh, that typically reduces banks' profitability uh, as, as those, those credit costs go up. Uh, something else you'll typically see is a slowdown in growth. Uh, kind of the, the definition of a recession is the economy is not growing anymore, uh, at least for, for some period of time. And so banks' lending growth, uh, banks' fee growth uh, will always, uh, will, I shouldn't say always, but will typically slow down in a recession. Um, it's not always as simple as it might seem. For example, during the pandemic, banks' fee growth actually surged. Um, I-banking was doing really well. Trading revenues are doing really well, which is, can be a little counterintuitive. Um, so it's, every recession's a little different, but you know, those are patterns you'll typically see. I think where a lot of the debate is now is what's gonna happen to interest rates even if we hit a mild recession? And a lot of that's going to depend on where inflation's at. So if, the, if we start to hit a mild recession and inflation is actually retreating, uh, you'll, I think you'll see the more typical pattern where interest rates could actually start to come down. Some of that net interest income might also start to come down for the banks, uh, which is what you typically see during a recession. However, if inflation is still high, if the Fed still feels like they need to fight that, uh, there's some debate about maybe they leave rates higher for a little bit longer um, to try to bring inflation, uh, bring it back down again. So. That's, I think there's a lot of debate about what happens to interest rates this cycle. Um, and then I think also something else I would highlight is this, this recession is, uh, you could say, almost well telegraphed, or I think a lot of people are thinking about it. A lot of people are expecting it. Banks are already starting to bake it into even their own macroeconomic forecast. And so there's some debate about uh, what happens to bank stock valuations. If, if everyone expects it and everyone's prepared, do they get hit as hard as maybe some of the previous recessions that were harsher and maybe a little more surprising? Uh, I think there's a lot of debate about that now as well. Well, let's turn to Wells Fargo. Now, their fourth quarter earnings shrank from a year ago, but they beat profit estimates. And they're kind of in like this comeback period. Mm -hmm. What's going on with this bank? Yeah, so Wells, yeah, like you said, they're still in turnaround mode. Uh, the, the two big things, uh, or two of the big things uh, that you already highlighted were, one, uh, they had that big settlement with the CFPB, uh, so they took another big charge during the quarter related to that, uh, and they're also, they're finally exiting the mortgage business. And so I would say on the mortgage business, kind of about time, uh, the mortgage business has been really tough for the banks uh, for some time as they've the whole industry or the banks have lost share in that industry for over a decade now to a lot of the non-bank non players, um, such as um, like Rocket Mortgage, I think a lot of people are familiar with, um, which is uh, like part of Quicken Loans. And so that's been the big player for a while now. They've taken share from the banks. And so Wells has been kind of one of the last uh, kind of banks to try to hang on there. Uh, a lot of the other banks have de-emphasized those operations for some time now, and I think Wells finally realized it's time for us to do that as well. So I'd say about time for them there. And then as far as the settlement, 
Uh, obviously, as a bank, you never want to be paying billions of dollars to regulators. So on the surface, not a great thing, but I think underneath the surface, it is a sign that they do continue to make progress. And so when you saw, for example, their estimate of future uh, legal costs, that actually went down during the quarter. So a sign that they, some of these costs are finally starting to, to go, through, uh, go through the snake, so to speak. Um, and you saw also that some of the language that they came out in the release, they described a lot of the, their efforts with the CFPB as substantially complete now. And so I think, um, I don't think the asset cap is yet gonna be lifted anytime soon. I think that's probably on, probably until 2024. But I think also it is at least a tangible sign of some progress for Wells. And Citigroup is also in a turnaround mode. What's the upside and the downside from their fourth quarter? Yeah, so Citigroup, so much I could go into there. Uh, such a complex situation, uh, so much going on with that bank, but a, a couple high-level points. So um, in the quarter, and, and this was a theme we saw for the year, is that um, their what's called their TTS business or Treasury and Trade Solutions business, that continues to do pretty well. I think uh, it's actually surprised us. Uh, we, we didn't expect it to do quite this well uh, this year. And that's really a, a key component of Citigroup's uh, operations. Uh, they're I'd say Citigroup's key strength, or one of their key strengths, is that global commercial network. Uh, that's one of the things that makes them unique, and the core of that is this TTS business. So that continues to do pretty well as far as just gathering some assets, taking some share, um, getting some incremental profitability from higher rates. Uh, on the downside, a lot of their businesses do still remain under some pressure, and so investment banking has not been good for anyone, including Citigroup. Uh, their wealth unit, a unit they're trying to make a turnaround in, has also been under some pressure, as it has been for the entire industry, as, as just asset levels tend to go down when, when market levels are lower. So those are some of the lowlights, some of the highlights uh, for Citigroup. I would say one other, I don't know if I'll call it a lowlight or a highlight, but uh, just something that adds some complexity to the situation is they, they still, uh, in, their, in their 2023 guidance, they still haven't quite broken out. Um, still haven't quite broken out the how the legacy franchises quite fit into uh, th that overall guidance. And so there's, I would say, some some lack of, or it, it just makes it harder to predict exactly what's going on underneath the surface for them. And so I think just a a key item for Citigroup just remains its complexity and trying to forecast what the future looks like as they continue to sell off more and more of these units. So that's situation remains complex. Uh, we, we still think shares are, are too cheap at this point, but um, management stuck to its, 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 um, its timelines for getting to some of their profitability goals remain 2024 to 2026. So still a multi-year story, still in the middle of turnaround mode. Um, so I think more to come from them. So if investors are looking for opportunities among the big four that we discussed today, what would you recommend? Yeah, so for the banks, it's been, I would say, a little bit um, frustrating uh, for the last, um, for I'd say a good chunk of 2022, uh, just because the banks have not gotten um, super cheap during that time. And uh, typically, when a recession happens, bank stocks tend to sell off as people kind of go into risk-off mode. Uh, banks' earnings tend to suffer. So banks, bank shares um, as a sector haven't really been fully pricing in a recession. Um, however, they haven't 
they've been, I would say, partially pricing in some of that risk, so they haven't been super uh, expensive either. And so we're kind of in this no man's land, I would say on a sector valuation basis, with that risk of recession kind of overhanging uh, a little bit, may or may not happen in the future. So I think with banks, it's been a little frustrating because there, there hasn't been a, an obvious sector-wide call. Uh, so I think the, the individual stock picking then starts to matter more. And within that, we tend to like more idiosyncratic names among the big four. Uh, and so, or I should say names with idiosyncratic uh, value drivers. And so that would be basically the cheap turnaround stocks. So Citigroup or Wells Fargo, uh, we think there's still some valuation disconnect there. Uh, we, we really like JP Morgan actually at the, at the start of 2022, but they've traded up a lot in the last three to six months. And so we think that opportunity has largely uh, played itself out. Um, that's how I would look at the big four. Uh, among the regionals, there's some relative valuation opportunities, we think. There's some stocks that we think are fully priced, some that are, are a bit cheaper. So among those, uh, some of the cheaper ones would be uh, like a Truist Bank. Uh, Truist, we think, is the, the market's gotten a little, I think maybe a little frustrated with some of the progress they've made after one of their, uh, after their recent acquisition. Um, and so there's, I think Truist, there's still some valuation disconnect there. Another one I would highlight would be KeyBank. Um, KeyBank has some of the highest investment banking exposure among the regionals um, as a percentage of revenues. And so I think the market's just doesn't love that right now, but that industry's cyclical, it'll come back eventually. And so I think um, eventually that valuation disconnect should close um, over time as well. Thanks, Eric, for your insights into the bank's quarterly earnings results. Great, yeah, thanks for having me. 529 plans can help parents and caregivers reach their college saving goals. And these plans offer tax benefits, but there's more to consider when choosing one. Here's Morningstar Inc.'s Director of Content, Susan Jaminski, and Morningstar Research Services Associate Director of Manager Selection, Patty Wee. Hi, I'm Susan Jaminski with Morningstar. 529 education savings plans have become popular vehicles for saving for college. Here today to discuss the two 529 plans that earn Morningstar's top rating and to talk about some best practices when it comes to evaluating 529 plans is Patty Wee. Patty is a senior analyst with Morningstar Research Services and leads Morningstar's 529 plan research. Nice to see you, Patty. Hi, Susan. So let's start out with a brief definition of what a 529 education savings plan is and how it works. Sure. A 529 savings plan, it's an investment vehicle. And one of the key benefits of it is that when you invest in this vehicle, your money grows tax-free. And then when you spend it on qualified education savings for college and room and board and books, you're not liable for capital gains. Um, typically, a plan, they'll offer a menu. So there'll be a menu of different equity funds. There'll be some bond funds. And then the most common investment is typically like a, like a target date fund. And we call them either target enrollment or age-based portfolios. And basically what it is is that depending on your child's age, you know, their child is five, they still have, you know, 13 more years of school, you pick that five-year-old portfolio, it'll be, it'll have a relatively high allocation equities, and over time it will gradually de-risk. The idea is that you let the money grow, it's de-risking, and then um, just before you go to college it shouldn't have that much equity left because as we saw in, these, in this year's market, um, you would take a big hit if you had too much equities. So now, given the, the tax benefits that you mentioned about these plans, it seems like the first step to take to figure out if your state offers a tax benefit before investing in a 529, right? 
Yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's like with all tax issues, it's very, very complicated. <laughs> um, it depends, like, does your state offer, does your state even have state income taxes? So if it doesn't have income taxes, it's not a question. But if it does have an income tax, you also have to check, does it offer an income tax benefit? And those come at all different um, amounts. Um, the easiest thing to do is that we have an article on it, which we will put a link to mm -hmm. in the bottom of this um, in the bottom of this video. But um, basically, it can provide um, like a benefit of $100 or so. But also, I mean, it depends on how much you're contributing, what your tax rate is, and what the state um, what the benefit is. So, Patty, one of the other things that investors should be considering when they're examining 529 plans besides taxes is the idea of expenses of these plans. Talk a little bit about that. Right. So the sponsors have done a great job over the last few years. Fees have come down a lot. And so for a lot of direct sold plans, which are plans that you can just access on your own, usually through the Internet, um, a lot of these plans, they, have hold, they offer mostly index, really cheap index funds. Their target enrollment and their age-based portfolios hold low-cost index funds. Um, so those plans can actually be very, very cheap. There are some plans that offer an all-active lineup, and those tend to be a little bit more expensive, but some of them are worth it, like the ones offered by T. Rowe or Fidelity or American Funds. Um, they are more expensive, but like the underlying holdings are these top-rated um, funds from those houses. So we like those plans, too. Um, now, what about investment options and processes? Do these tend to be sort of similar across different plans, um, or there are there some significant differences? I mean, you mentioned some of them have actively managed funds versus index funds. What are some of the other differences you see? Um, generally speaking, the ones that are direct sold, they will tend to have a more index fund lineup. Um, the ones that are advisor sold, they, they tend to have a much bigger menu because you have an advisor helping you. They'll have maybe more asset classes and they'll have a mix of active and um, index funds that you can choose from. So Morningstar, of course, rates 529 plans, and there are two plans that currently hold our highest rating of gold. Um, the first gold-rated plan is the Michigan Education Savings Program, which is managed by TIACREF. Why do we think so highly of this plan? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the, uh, very importantly, it's a well-designed plan. It has low fees. We like that very much. And also the state that sponsors it, they their, their governance and their... Um, their oversight over the plan is very, very strong. So they recently moved to a target enrollment structure. They used to have an age-based structure. Target enrollment is a smoother glide down. The equity trims are smaller. So that is better. So if a market, um, it just if there's less market timing risk with a smoother glide path. And when they worked with Tia Craft to create this new um, new glide path, they um, they incorporated like how their state investors, like when do they usually open accounts, how much are they putting in, and so they optimized the glide path using participant mm -hmm. data, which we thought was a very strong, um, which was very good. And another thing they also did was they also made it open architecture. So they use a mix of funds. Sometimes from a certain provider, the provider will want to use their own funds. In this plan, they use a mix of um, Vanguard and other funds as well. So an open architecture also is a very, um, very good. Interesting. Um, and then the second gold-rated plan is Utah's My My 529 plan. Um, and this is the only plan that has consistently earned a gold rating every year for the past decade since Morningstar started rating 529 plans, which seems quite noteworthy. Um, what, is, what is this plan doing right? Right. So similar to the Michigan plan, um, very, very strong state oversight. They use a progressive glide path. They use uh, low-cost index funds as underlying holdings. Um, one thing that's different about the Utah plan is that they actually also have 
uh, a feature where you can customize your own glide path. So you can kind of decide mm -hmm. if you want to be more aggressive, you can kind of create your own more aggressive glide path. And then you can also pick the underlying funds to build it. Mm -hmm. And they offer you a mix of Vanguard and DFA funds. Um, so that's an interesting option. Actually, that's the only, it's the only plan that kind of offers this kind of customizable feature. Well, Patty, thanks for your time today. We always enjoy talking with you about 529 plans. Thanks, Susan. And for those viewers who are interested in seeing Morningstar's 529 plan ratings, we will provide a link to those ratings at the end of this transcript. I'm Susan Jabinski. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Susan and Patty. Subscribe to Morningstar's YouTube channel to see new videos about market news, investment picks, and personal finance. Thanks to podcast producer Jake Vankerson, who's putting this show together for us this week. And thank you for tuning into Investing Insights. I'm Ivana Hampton, a senior multimedia editor here at Morningstar. Take care. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. While this guest may license or offer products and services of Morningstar and its affiliates, unless otherwise stated, he or she is not affiliated with Morningstar and its affiliates. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.